Welcome to Miss D's Lunacy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we are going to be doing an unusual conversation with my dear friend Tarek Wildman, who was here before, the Peter Pan and the Pied Piper of our friends, and also the wild man that he really is. And I'm introducing him to you again. This is my dear friend from Spain, Tarek Wildman. Welcome back. Good morning or good afternoon, wherever you are. That's perfect. How are you? I'm well, and I'm sitting here in Florida looking at birds flying through the sky and realizing how misunderstood many of them are. Well, the only birds that I seem to understand is the parrot, which seems to have a chit-chat conversation. I had a friend of mine who had the most fabulous parrot that uh, imitated the phone. So when I would go to her house, I would hear, dring, dring, which was the bird. And I'd say, Yvette, your phone is ringing. She said, no, that's the bird. And then he would say, Yvette calling, hello, hello. And I think they're absolutely marvelous. But that's about what I know about birds. Well, parrots, have caused people to be arrested when people comes into a house. A criminal never buys a parrot because a parrot could be deadly for your reputation. And the police come in, where were you? I was there. I was knocking off at six. We're knocking off at six. What? I'm not. Shut up. And they try to kill the bird. It's too late. They also live to be very old. But they parrots, live an incredible long time. Parrots are picturesque and wonderful. But if you're here in Florida and you look up, you see these beautiful things called turkey vultures. And most people think turkey vultures are really ugly carrion eaters. But you'd have to ask yourself, without these beautiful soaring birds that so influence the Wright brothers themselves, where would your garbage, where would the roadkill go? It would fester, get maggots, and it would be horrible for everybody. But these things clean up after us. So when They're you see the garbage vulture, of the sky. They are, the, they are fantastic, and they glide beautifully. Where I live in Spain, there is a huge vulture called a griffin vulture, which is about 13 foot across in wingspan, and it looks like a flying bed as it crosses you. It'll block out the sun. And they're so big, they'll stand on a road, and when you walk up to them, they'll go, hello. And I'll go, aren't you supposed to fly away? You're a bird. And maybe they go, mm, okay then. And they start to flap off. And then they get into the air, and suddenly they're transformed from a gawky, funny, vultry-looking, enormous thing to the most beautiful, elegant, soaring bird, which can pick up the tiniest of current and circle around your head and go higher and higher as their ears sing. Because vultures' ears produce a rising note as they, as they climb and a downward note as they descend, so they know where the air is rising. And in this way, they can just soar across counties without moving their wings at all. Well, by picking up the air current, like yes, very much like a thermals, plane. like a glider. Now, he just told me an amazing story earlier about a bird who actually can fly for two years without stopping, mating, sleeping, eating in the air for two years, never put, sets its feet down. I think that's a remarkable. Imagine you're driving along a turnpike at about 80 miles an hour along a highway. And as you look out of your window of your car, you see a tiny bird doing the same speed as you. 80 miles an hour looking at you. It's, this is a bird called a swift. It's very aptly named. They're the most beautiful, in my opinion, of all birds. I love swifts. They have scimitar-like wings. And they are born in high walls by their parents who've only nested just that time, only to land to have eggs. Otherwise, they never land. And a young swift, when it comes out of the egg, will wait for about two or three weeks or four weeks. And then when it knows, it will just drop out of its crevice. And its legs are so weak, it cannot land. Its wings are beautiful. It flies all the time. It drops from its nest, soars through the air by instinct, and then doesn't land again for two whole years. They fly between the middle of Africa, all the way across the north of Europe in the summer, and back again. They sleep on the wing. They have sex on the wing. They eat on the wing. And they How fly day and that? night. 
Well, they, they, they glide beautifully. They're incredibly fast. They can dart through crevices between buildings doing 70 miles an hour chasing each other, shrieking as they go. And then they fly high, high, high up during the day and eat insects. And at night, they glide back and nest in high walls. The Germans call them wall gliders. The German word for a beautiful bird that is the swift is the Mauensegler, the wall glider, which is actually quite a good name for it because they glide beautifully and they live on walls. Oh. How big are they? Swift is about the size of maybe a man's, a woman's arm, um, half across an arm, maybe about a foot and a half across, wings like a curved scimitar, and a tiny, a, t a tiny sort of patch under the throat, big, big mouth to swoop and catch insects as they fly, and big brown eyes. They're quite Disney-looking. They're very beautiful, and they're very fast. They have no natural predators at all, almost. Um, only a hobby or a peregrine, if it was really lucky, could catch them. But nothing could catch a swift. But they only live about five years, whereas a parrot will live for ages and ages and ages. They, they do. It's extraordinary. Now, you showed me a picture of a griffin picking up a wolf. Now, that was absolutely stunning. Well, a griffin vulture, which is one of the large birds where I live in Spain, is, is generally not going to go and attack something that's alive. It generally, like all vultures, eats carcasses, like crows do. The most intelligent bird is a crow, um, the, but they are very bright. Crows in Japan um, had trouble cracking nuts, and there's a YouTube video of this, which is marvelous. They, they had these hazelnuts and they'd, or walnuts, and they'd carry them up in the end, drop them onto concrete, and they'd just bounce. One in 50 would break. So the crows started getting smart. They thought, let's start to have someone else do our work for us. So the crows dropped, started dropping them on, on streets, you know, by uh, where traffic passed. And so the cars would run over them and do their work for them. And then, of course, one or two crows are getting squashed themselves, and they went down to eat them. So the crows got smarter still, and they started dropping them on crosswalks in Japan, just on the crosswalks. And so when the lights turned green, the trucks would pass, the nuts would get crushed under the wheels of the trucks, and the crows would wait patiently with, like all the pedestrians, at the side until the lights went safe to cross. And then the, the pedestrians would cross, and the crows would quickly nip out underneath the pedestrians' feet and eat all the crushed nuts and everything else, and then fly off to the next time. I think it's the most hysterical story. Do they do that here? I don't know if they've got that far, but crows, it's, they've all tested birds' intelligences. And parrots are very bright, but crows are the top of the tree for brains. They also apparently have the reasoning power of about a five-year-old child. Well, they're, they're the most ghastly sound they make. They're, they're, rah, rah, they're rah. so annoying. And oh, don't they bother the fields, the cornfields? Well, they will eat anything. Crows are, uh, uh, farmers don't like them because they will eat anything. They are basically rather like mini buzzards. They are further down the size chain from a true buzzards and things like a turkey vulture or a red-tailed hawk. Crows will do the same thing, except they're, they're, not, they're not just carnivores. They'll eat, they'll eat some wheat, they'll eat anything they come across, rather like humans. Well, that's why in the fields you always have the Halloween guy, you know, stuffed guy. Yes, with the scare, straw, scarecrow. The scarecrow, indeed. so that they would stop from, from eating all the food. Indeed. So you're right, they're not so stupid after they're all. very clever. Now, we all think of pigeons as absolutely annoying. As you know, they were trying to get rid of them in, the, in Venice because they're ruining, their feces ruins the limestone and er erodes the stone itself. And so it was a big, big problem since they have so many of them. So I, we call them rodents with tails or whatever, wings. And Tarek doesn't seem to agree. So we want to hear his take on the pigeons, which are quite annoying animals. 
Well, I think it's 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 common that anything that's too too frequently seen becomes taken for granted. If you go to Miami Beach, you see two thousand million blondes all looking the same in bikinis, and eventually you become like, so what? If there was one of those in in some place in the middle of nowhere, people would go, "Woo!" So it is with these beautiful pigeons. Pigeons are rock doves, and they are very fast and very beautiful, and they used to live on cliffs. And of course, men started building towns and skyscrapers, and there was a lot of food left over because people dropped something. And why are you going to go, if you're a sensible pigeon living in a cliff, getting rained on in some nook, looking for some mouse or some ant or some piece of corn, which they generally eat, which is very hard to find and runs away, when somebody's just left half a hamburger <laughs> beneath a man-made cliff, which might be Fifth Avenue. So humans pay a lot of money for apartments. Pigeons live there free. Oh. Now, pigeons also in big cities for a long time had no natural predators. But uh, because DDT had killed all their natural predator, the beautiful peregrine falcon, which a peregrine is a beautiful bird which is used for hunting and overall is, if in a dive, the fastest animal in the world, capable of 180 miles per hour, dropping straight down. And they used to live in the cliffs too, and pigeons were their prey. And for probably a century, pigeons were all over cities and there were no peregrines. But now peregrine falcons are moving back into cities. They're in London, they're in Manhattan, and they nest too. And a pigeon, which they used for messengers in the war, will fly fast and true. But high, high above is a peregrine looking down. And if it thinks it's got a chance, it will fold its wings totally tight and drop like a torpedo, like a bomb, like a bullet, straight down at the pigeon. And at the last minute, put out its feet, its claws, and hit it just behind the neck, breaking its neck instantly and carry it off. All good, unless it misses and it goes into the ground, in which case the pigeon flies on and the peregrine dies. How did they train the pigeons to be messengers? That's very interesting. Pigeons have a great sense of, by the sun and magnetic fields, as do many birds, of where they should be and live. So a pigeon brought up in a, in a coop in Lancashire in England taken away from that coop by 50 miles and released, will figure out where it is and come back. Taken further away, they will figure out where they are and come back further still. And so even up until World War II, they were a backup, carrier messenger pigeons were a backup for all the armies everywhere, had them, trained pigeons that were little things on their feet, which you could put a little message in and say, help, we're under attack and here we are, and release the pigeon. And if it got through, it would fly back to its roost and the keeper would say, hello, pigeon number 16's here. See what it's got written in its message. Well, Hogwarts came up with that too, with the owls, owls right? yes. Although owls, that I've never heard of an owl being trained. No, to, but that was Hogwarts because it was a story. But, but it, owls are very beautiful. Yeah, and they came up with that story because of the pigeons. And we seem to forget that because Florida has some of the most beautiful birds ever. I mean, there are bird sanctuaries here. You can see them, egrets and flamingos and all sorts of beautiful birds mating and and people take the most extraordinary pictures of birds here on on Florida, but in your you were telling me something about the um, the indigenous birds of Spain, which I think are extraordinary, and how they don't fly over water because we don't seem to understand that very few birds can actually sit on the water except for water birds. And you were telling me an extraordinary story about how they travel all over, but they will not go over the sea, not unless they have to. Well, so they do something interesting. Well, in, in Europe, um, many in Northern Europe and to Africa, birds migrate um, due to the weather, and the weather is food. And crossing the Mediterranean, you obviously don't go across the Atlantic unless you're being blown by a wind, which occasionally happens. 
they would not know about worth any sort of in, any evolutionary success would want to fly in a group over wide open water when it can cross a small stretch of the same sea between the continents. So in Europe, the two migratory routes of birds between Africa and Europe are over the Bosphorus, but in Istanbul, if you go to Istanbul in February, January or February, you'll see golden eagles flying over, you'll see cranes flying over, all on their way to Russia or Germany or Finland or all those parts of the east. And if you come to the Straits of Gibraltar, and you look across towards Morocco, clearly visible from Spain, you'll find golden eagles and cranes and swallows and swifts. All around February time, as the days start to lengthen, they realize summer is coming and they start heading north again to, to nest. True seabirds, such as a gull or an albatross, these are at home on the sea. But land birds, if they weaken, they land in the water, they're dead. And they know this. So they always cross where the crossing's smallest. It's amazing. So the eagles and all the birds in Europe live over there. Well, some are migratory, some are not. Owls, the great gray owl of Siberia, beautiful, enormous owl, um, will live all year round. Um, swans uh, from northern Russia are the, one of the best indicators of how cold a winter will be um, in England and in France. Um, they always tend to arrive in August or September at their wintering grounds, which for a swan, when it normally lives in the tundra of northern Russia, um, that's its summer. England, even though it's pretty horrible in winter, is is like living in the south of France for a person. So they head off towards England. But if they arrive two weeks early, you know it's going to be a really tough winter. If they arrive two weeks late, you know it's going to be a really mild one. And it never fails. This year in England, it's been atrocious. And the swans arrived in August. And everyone who knew swans said, this is going to be a bad one. And so it has proved they know things that we haven't figured out with computers yet. How in the world do you know so much about birds? I'm just a bird. Not... You're a bird. Well, frankly, there was a great question that was asked some time ago, and I think it's wonderful. If you, where would you like to be in your afterlife? Would you like to be a bird or a fish? 95% of the people said bird because, of course, you can see the whole world. You can fly everywhere. It's absolutely magnificent. Plus, supposedly, nobody can quite catch you except the eagle, I suppose. Some birds are prey, like yeah. pigeons. They're eaten quite a lot. That's why they breed so much. It's like being a lemming. Your one solution to survival of your species is to have lots and lots and lots of babies. And the hope out of your 36 children, three make it. Uh, some birds, like the swift, are virtually immune to predators because they're so damn fast. Or one could be an apex predator, which I suppose a human is the apex of all. But if you're going to be a a kind of in the water, you'd be an apex predator if you were a great white shark. If you were a mammal, you might be a lion, unless, unless some dentist goes and shoots you or something like that, of course. Um, if you are going to be a bird, well, you'd want to be an eagle or an owl or, um, or a swift. Um, that's nice. To be a sparrow, a bit miserable, eaten by everything. Everyone hates you. You're, everyone's common as dirt. No one watches you at all. But if you're some beautiful thing like a flamingo, you'd be very ornamental. You could sit on someone's pond and say, look, I'm beautiful. I'm pink. I'm pink. I'm really not that intelligent like a crow, nor can I do anything except eat prawns or plankton upside down. But look at my legs. Look at my legs. Everyone invites me on their boat because I'm so beautiful. Well, flamingos don't do it for me, but anyway. Well, we went to the Galapagos, Wendy and I, and I did do a bit of an episode with her. We saw the funniest looking birds. They're called blue-footed boobies. Ah, and they had the, the little boots. The blue-footed boobies. They're marvelous. They're absolutely marvelous, and they have literally blue feet, and there are millions and millions of them. Yes. 
And they have all sorts of birds there. They're very happy. They have absolutely no predators because there's nothing that bothers them. This is all in the Galapagos where they have amazing. So we were sort of getting to learn all about these wonderful birds. And it was quite spectacular because I don't think they're seen anywhere but there. Blue-footed boobies have a very close relative here in Florida, which are the most ungainly-looking birds that look like they shouldn't fly at all the way they do. How can these birds, that look like garbage trucks, fly with such grace? How can these birds, the relative of a booby, with a huge bill and a huge pouch? Pelican. Pelican. Pelicans, (laughs) if you're a pigeon, don't go near a pelican. They will take a look at you and they'll just eat you. They'll eat dogs. They eat, they've eaten kittens. They are just frightening. They're, they have a few of them from the reign of Charles II in St. James's Park. And every so often the tourists go there and all these cutesy birds and every so often. And suddenly there's someone, there's a little duckling going quack, quack, very cutely. And suddenly pelicans got it. Yeah. The oh, well, they've the got such a big bill that uh, they could sort of put anything in there, But right? it's like watching a garbage truck fly. <laughs> oh, I, I've never seen anything so graceful as a flight of pelicans crossing the sea, losing no height at all. And I'm thinking, how can something so unstreamlined with this giant sort of floppy um, underneath it just manage to stay in the air and not lose any height? They're beautiful to watch. But they don't go anywhere. Well, they go as far as there's food. And I mean, you know, people pay a fortune for houses in Palm Beach. Pelicans pay nothing. And they still live here. I rather like that about I haven't seen too many. My husband, a friend of mine who's going to be on the show, her name is Queenie, believe it or not. She's absolutely wonderful. And she woke up one morning, and there was a beautiful peacock. And it had like a little umbrella on its head, which meant it was a boy. And it was all by itself. And somehow it landed in her yard. And she was, she was absolutely mesmerized by this bird. It looked like it was very young because all of its beautiful feathers hadn't grown in yet. And it has been living there in her, on her property, completely unabashed for six months. And they call it Rex to her queenie. A, mi- a migratory peacock. peacock. Well, I've but never heard one. Of that I've never, never seen one. And it must have gotten lost from its flock. And it sits and it flies on her. There's a rooftop where she has a bit of an eve. And it sleeps there every night. And it comes right on her patio and sits on her table. And she feeds it from some enormous, expensive place in Canada that costs $40 a month and she looks at the lawnmower people. She sees the pool. Well, it's a boy, obviously, since it has the little thingy do. And it, finally, its plumage is it's coming. Often the, the thingy do is a sign of a male, yes. No, the, the, little, the little hat. The oh, little hat. yes, well, yes. The yes, umbrella. umbrella. The umbrella. How do you know it was a peacock? Well, because of the lee, of, of this, of the, 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 what do you call them? Tail? Yes, beautiful, beautiful tails. It's absolutely magnificent. We do not know how it landed on her head. Well, I don't know either because I've got a friend who's got a place in England and a peacock is his sort of family symbol. They've got a bunch of peacocks there. And they save farms. They go out for But they don't move very well because it's like running around with a parachute tied to your ass. I mean, you can't take off very well with these giant feathers. They generally just wander around and kind of like someone at the court. Well, like, yes, they squawk terribly, like like a garden gate that hasn't been oiled. And they look, they're just like it, some courtier at the court of Louis XIV. They go like, hello, look at me, I'm beautiful. I cannot fly. My brain is rather small. I'll display with my magnificent iridescent feathers for the ladies out here in this beautiful place. 
and I'm protected by the various people who look after me, generally quite wealth, who send food from Canada for me, <laughs> and I have a very nice life. But for me, it wouldn't be as beautiful as No, but it's, they can't understand what it's doing all by itself. So I have a friend of mine, they have a farm. A lot of people have farms in Okeechobee where they raise animals, cows, whatnot, and they have shooting ranges and things. Well, they have peacocks there because they make such a squawkly racket that it take, keeps predators away and people from robbing them and whatnot. But this one doesn't seem to mind at all. And it sits there, and I keep thinking that poor animal's going to get its beautiful foliage and fly off somewhere. Like has never the, left. Like the Capitoline geese that saved Rome. The geese, which or when geese sit down, they're very nervous about foxes and coyotes. And always, one goose is always awake when all the others have their heads tucked under their wings. And when that one gets tired, another one takes over. If there are a bunch of geese, they're each side. And in ancient times, the geese, like your peacocks, saved Rome. The geese were kept at the capital. And the Capitoline geese um, started squawking because a raiding party was coming to wipe out the early denizens of Rome before the Roman Empire became Are you kidding? And the geese started squawking, and all the centurions woke up and drove them off. And they were like the crows or the ravens in the Tower of London. The Capitoline geese of Rome are dead famous for this. Geese are very good, good guards, guards things. Well, I did not know that. I Well, I, did, I didn't know that. Ask a Roman. As I say, blow me over with a feather. Ask a Roman, the Capitoline geese. Saved, Capitoline uh, geese. The geese of the capital. They saved the capital with an O, like the capital in Washington. They saved Rome in the very early days from surprise attack. Well, from surprise attacks, multiple attacks, because everybody wanted to... I mean, what are we talking about? B.C., obviously. Oh, yes. Very long time before Julius And so the geese were around all that time? Geese have been around for a very long time. And that's how they stay in groups, because one has to wake up, one has to... Geese are It's almost like the revelry for the, you know, the army. Taps, taps. Geese geese are tasty, and they they don't like being eaten by foxes, and they'll get them. So their method of defense is to basically look after each other. If you ever have a goose which is nested, you'll find all the other geese come and defend its nest besides the geese in question. And if you're a swan, up the coast from here, there's a rather posh resort. Well, not a posh, but a sort of place called Hope Sound. And there was a giant swan. And the lady... Um, they can be you, mean, by the way. They, oh, this, oh, this story yeah. is magnificent. There was a sort of reciprocal favor to some English type who came over to Hope Sound who'd had swans in England. So this swan was, and this, this English lady wore tweed, and she was very stern. And the swan started swimming towards her, and she didn't back off. She said, look, there is a male swan, adult male threat display, clinic guarding its nest. Now the swan has come close to the shore. It's making a bow wave like a battleship. It's puffed up, and it doesn't look happy. Then it gets out. I saw this swan a week after this incident. Its feet were as big as my hands, bigger. It comes towards them. No, it's hissing and stretching out its neck as if to drive off an intruder. Suddenly the swan struck out, cut her, le- her leg to ribbons, and she was in hospital with 25 stitches, no. in still in a tweed skirt. So don't mess with a swan. Good God. Don't mess had, with a swan defending been his doing nest. anything. She- She'd been on the swan, swan's turf, and lady swan was on the nest. Male swan oh. was just not going to, he, he just came right out of the water and just went slash with his bill, and off she went to hospital. That is amazing. I didn't realize that they would cause such damage. You I didn't think they had a, any teeth. Well, they don't. They have a sharp bill, and they're pretty tough swans, and they're quite big. I mean, when you get, it's not like an alligator or anything, but when you get a swan coming at you, you ought to be a little bit careful, at least wear trousers rather than a skirt. 
And she had no idea. Well, she no, she was this rather sort of English-English type who knew about birds very well and was, while everyone else very sensibly was retreating backwards towards the underground. She stayed she in stayed the there and, and just said, here is a swan in its threat display. And the next thing you knew, there was a shriek and lots of blood. Oh, dear, dear, dear. Well, she's learned her lesson, I'm sure. Yes, sir. Because it's a great story to tell people, though, during her tea parties, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, my stitches, how'd you get those? <laughs> yes, how'd you get all that on your leg? Well, the snapping turtles are actually very, very scary and have even stronger jaws than sharks, I'm told. Terrifying things. They really are. And you once I mean, caught one. It broke a oak broomstick clean in half with one snap of its beak. No. We had this place in Connecticut and a giant snapping turtle emerged. And this thing was the size of a drum. It was like the size of one of the a drum kit. And it approached and we kept it. And it was hissed and drew its head back with its big beak. And then it would snap. And I would never seen one of these things before. I'd heard of them because of Chuck Berry songs and stuff. But I thought like, Jesus God, no, what the hell is this? And so eventually we're trying to get this into a corner and one of my friends brings a literally an oak broomstick and we're prodding it in the thing going, and suddenly it goes, and the oak broomstick is snapped in half like you and I would snap a matchstick. I was like, you know, you better I, get the fire to, the fire thing. No, we got it back into the lake. We got it. We got a. We got a, um, a net. But no, after it had done that, I was thinking, I'm not going. I'm not going within ten feet of that beast. Uh, no. Nor are you swimming in the lake. <laughs> yeah, one well, of them snappers all round my feet. But I so held on to my ding-a-ling-a-ling. It's, it's Chuck Berry. Yeah, no, I know. It's know about these snappers. Yeah, not good things. I eat ducks. They'll just take them from underneath. They'll come up beneath the duck and oh, down they go. No. Oh, it's all very sad. It's, all, it's not very Disney at all, really. Well, it's like alligators. It's like alligators. If an alligator comes at you, by the way. Hit its nose. No, don't run in a straight line. Oh, that's right. Alligators. I've got a friend who breeds fighting bulls in Spain and another friend who lives up here and a bit of an outdoorsman. Principle of both these creatures, very fierce and nasty, um, is do not run away in a straight line. If it's an alligator run sideways and zigzags because an alligator is very fast in short bursts but because its belly's dragging along the ground and because it's got four feet it can't return really fast but it so you've got to have the presence of mind to knit, run away and then run away to the side zigzag very intelligent and similarly with a fighting bull i was told the thing to do if a bull attacks you is not to run it's to stand still if you can do this and then as it comes you either move to one side or twist its horn so it falls over and sit in it my goodness. Now, Leopold did that. This was a friend. Um, I once really went into a, a bull ring, and um, everyone in their life have these, I can't really say this on the air, but there's an oh bleep moment. I've had once when I was in an airplane crash when a propeller stopped in an old plane over open country, and you think, this is surely only happening on television. And another one when I was in a bull ring, and there was a bull, and I thought, if I stay still, nothing will happen. But the bull looked at me in the eyes. And as it looked in the eyes, I thought, Oh, and then it started coming at me. And I turned and I ran, first mistake. Bulls are much faster than you are, and they're four-wheel drive, and they weigh a ton, and they've got horns at the front. It's not a good thing to run away, and they're catching you. So this bull got me, and I managed to push its head to one side just as it got me in the leg. And luckily, I managed to get behind one of the boards in the bull ring before it came on again. So the next day, I was down in my house in the south, and I met a friend there who breeds fighting bulls for many years. And he's a Spanish man, tall and strong. And I told him my story, and he was, Derek, it was a big mistake. What you must do when a bull comes at you is to stand your ground. And when a bull is on top of you, move to one side and twist his horns so it falls over. Then you get on top of the bull, and you take off your belt, and you tie up its legs. 
I'm going like, yes, sure. He said, no, I did this three months ago. We breed bulls, which for 200 years. And everywhere they go, they're famous. Every bull has a number. I ride out on my horse with a long pole and a nail on the pole. And we brought the bulls. And the ones that are toros bravos, they come at the horse. And I say, well, bull number 65 is a brave one. But if bull number 201 runs away, he's not a brave one. He does not go to Valencia or Madrid. One day, I do this, and the bull turns and charges, and I canter away. Gallop. The horse hits a rabbit hole, and I come off. Now I'm on my own with a twisted ankle. I said, what did you do? He said, well, like I told you, I stood my ground. A bull charged me. And as it comes past me, I move to one side. I twist its horns, and I pull it onto its back, and I pull off my belt, and I tie it up. But Derek, you must remember, if you have a bull, they're very valuable. And if you tie up four legs, it will hurt it insides. So you don't tie up four legs with your belt when you're wrestling with this bull lying on top of it, trying to wrestle with the bull. Also, you do not tie up two legs, because if you tie up two legs, you will be surprised how fast a bull can hop. So you tie up three legs. So already I'm kind of almost in you know, a prayer mat worshiping this guy saying like, you know, God. And I said, what happened? He said, well, I tied up three legs and then I started to run and the bull struggled free. And I managed to get up an olive tree just as the people from the stable came out clapping cymbals to drive it off. But so there we are. I never had the presence of mind to do this, but if you're chased by an alligator running zigzags and if you're chased by a fighting bull, do not move. Just move to one side just as it's on you. Um, probably no one's going to have the sheer rampant bravery of this Leopoldo fellow to tie it up with your belt. But just don't run away from it because it'll catch you. Just move zigzags. Well, the only bull that I want to be around is Ferdinand because he liked to smell the flowers. And he was a little story that we heard when we were little. And I think he was the cutest little thing. And all he wanted to do was smell the flowers and go down and take all of them slowly. Was, all the ladies slowly. It's a very beautiful story written in the 30s and illustrated um, with it's just by Ronda in Spain, which is near where I live. And uh, Ferdinand is this lovely bull who doesn't mean any harm at all. And um, it happens to be when the bull bull people are coming to see who's the fiercest bull in Spain for the big bullfight. Um, he who always smells the flowers happens to sit on a bee. Ah. And he sits on a bee at the very moment these people are looking for the fiercest bull in Spain and the bee stings him and he goes absolutely nuts. And so the next thing you know, he's in Madrid and he's left in the ring and all he does is smell the flowers. Oh, such a sweet story. I remember it well when we were in Paris. I remember now, darling, this is too cute. I love all my sto your stories. Um, now, you're going to talk to me about Andalusia, which is an un which is in Spain, of course. It's part of Spain. Well, tell me more about it. Because well, it's a, it's, a part, it's the southernmost part of Spain, and it's where these bulls we were talking about live. And it's where a lot of uh, things are from which people associate with Spain in general. Flamenco, bullfighting, sherry, uh, guitarists, gypsies. Um, it was the birthplace of Picasso, um, the birthplace of Lorca. Um, it has the, the biggest desert, one of the biggest deserts in Europe where they filmed all the spaghetti westerns. Um, and it, it has also the highest rainfall, mountain ranges. It's about the size of Austria and it's very poor. Um, very, very beautiful. Um, very uh, rich in its day because of the trade with South America. So the cities of Seville and Granada and Cordoba and Malaga are all there. Um, it's a very, very beautiful place. And it's a lovely climate and people are superb. But you had the history of something about the wars and whatnot or? Well, it was um, a very, uh, a lot of the Roman generals and leaders came from, came from Spain. 
and it has a, a culture of, which goes back many years. And then, of course, there was an Islamic conquest of the south of Spain, which is actually a very, very tolerant time in the history of Islam when um, all religions basically coexisted very peacefully. Um, and Cordoba, I just said, was like being the New York City of its day, but a thousand years ago, where it was the most advanced technically, technically of all cities in the world. Um, you know, it had lighting, it had beautiful irrigation, a Jewish chancellor, modern mathematics, science, astronomy, all there at the time when all the people in Northern Europe, all the Germanic tribes and the Anglo-Saxons and the Celts were all chopping each other's hands off. Yeah, I remember you discussing it the last time, but what about the fact that it has mountains, it has desert, it has, why isn't it more famous? Well, it is to, it is, it is really. I think it's, um, it's famous enough. Um, it, it's as much as it's, it's a part of Spain that people who are poetic. I think probably it, a challenge would be more operas have been set there than anywhere else. Well, because because it is a, it's a very romantic kind of area. So if you think of Marriage of Figaro, the Barbara Seville, or Carmen, all set in Andalusia, and many, many more besides. Because I think it appeals to a lot of people's artistic sensibilities. Um, a Greco, a lot of people, all the painters and so on from there. But Spain is a wonderful place, but Andalusia is the part of Spain I love the most. It's, uh, it's a very, very... Well, what I love about world. the fact that you like birds so much is very much like a plane. That's what You're fascinated by planes, and birds are very similar. I mean, that's how they tried to figure out how to fly. Remember, they used to put wings on them. It was very difficult at first because people, until the Wright brothers came along, tried to always make things flap. And that's very hard. For a big structure to flap, it generally just falls off. (laughs) What the Wright brothers did was they looked, and a very brilliant German called Otto Lilienthal, was to look at how birds glid and glided. So if you see a red-tailed hawk or a turkey vulture, respect it, because the Wright brothers looked at those and got the angles of the wing, the dihedral, and how they moved their tails about. And the Wright brothers just tried it out bit by bit, on these windy shores of the, uh, the North Carolinian bar- Barrier Islands, Kitty Hawk in North Carolina, in a shed they built themselves with gliders, which they first made like kites, with strings, they, which were 20 feet across, and would almost lift them off the ground, like kite surfing, really, and then eventually getting a glider which they could st- lie on and fly it without strings, and they did that. And then by and by, getting uh, that same glider, making it bigger, and putting a very primitive engine in it. But they did it in steps, and the way that birds were, you, you, they noticed the influence of different shapes. A, a bird with fat, wide wings, like a vulture or a, or a hawk, is very good for gliding up in updrafts slowly. But a bird, that ha- a bird that has to fly fast without losing height has to have long, thin wings, because that's a much more efficient shape, like a glider does, a modern-day glider. Right, those are fabulous. So and- like an albatross will have very long, thin wings, and a tern, for instance, an, a sea-going beautiful tern, T-E-R-N, which can migrate every year from the South Pole to the North Pole and back again over water, have these beautiful, thin, long wings like gliders, because they are efficientist at high speeds. It's like an airliner's wing, very long and thin and slightly swept back. But if you want to fly close to the ground and gather height fast, and speed isn't important, you want a very wide, fat wing like a vulture, which just circles around looking for the next thing that's been run over by somebody. Now, a bird will flap its wings until it finds a thermal. Mm. A plane needs the engine to not have to flap its wings so it can soar up to the thermal, and then it doesn't need to sort of use its wings because it'll have the height to find the thermal. Technically, in 
girls' terms? Is this kind of the idea? More or less, except an airliner or a plane doesn't use a thermal at all. It just uses its engine the whole I time. I understand, but the concept of what you were yes, talking about. Yes, a glider will, if there's some gliders that have motors on them, which do exactly what you say. And other ones... I get a name. I get a name. <laughs> <laughs> and other ones are just towed up by a rope from a plane. Well, that I've that done, time. which is absolutely magic. It is, I, I've done it in England, and I've done it in Belgium. Have you seen the Thomas Crown Affair? Yeah, it's a glider, and that's not a very beautiful one in that film either. It's it doesn't a, matter. It's a very beautiful sport, and I've done that myself since I was fifteen. I started flying gliders when I was fifteen. But it, the silence and and the absolute amazement of the sky, and then the fact that you're—I don't know how you read a thermal. I mean, you just—you're. I mean, I, I wasn't flying the thing; I was just a, a, a passenger. But to be able to understand where the wind is i mean you can't see wind thermals are like gigantic smoke rings imagine Correct. someone puffing a cigar and a smoke ring goes up the whole thing rises it's the shape of a donut the inside bit goes up fast the outside bit goes down but the whole thing meanwhile is going up these are invisible until they become a cloud when they get to the condensation uh. level how you find one is you look where they're most likely to be if you're in a glider you look down and if there's a stretch of tarmac or a city as uh, water won't produce it but ever there's any difference in temperature between this part where the ground's going to get hotter faster than that part that's where it's likely to be you'll fly along looking for something and the plane will shudder it will go down at first because you're going through the outside of the big ring and then once it goes down you know at once the thing to do is to start turning it because as almost as soon as you've gone the down and you're lifted off your seat by the down you're pressed into your seat by the up and you then start circling, trying to keep your glider right in the center of the upgoing smoke circle, if it, as it were. In front of you is an instrument called a variometer. This is a little needle, horizontal, which when the glider is going rising, it goes upwards, and when it's sinking, it goes down. Vultures have these in their ears. They have a singing note that goes when they're rising, when they're going down. And gliders have, been, have copied this. So you can look at the How sky. do they know a bird has a yee and a yaw? They have a, they have a differential eardrums. Vultures and, and soaring birds. Really? So they can tell when they're in lift. Wow. Owls have this for a different reason. Owls have different eardrums so they can judge distances in the dark precisely. I should have one because I go to a party. People say, we've heard Dion. We haven't seen her yet. <laughs> so maybe I should have a differential drum in my ear. Oh, I think that's absolutely marvelous. I think it's one of the most romantic thing I think I've ever done. If somebody would propose to me on a glider... Of course, they'd have to be looking at the needle, I suppose, instead of staring at me because we might plummet to the ground. But it is so peaceful and so quiet that is beautiful. Really, I mean, me, who's such a busy person, I absolutely adore being on gliders. I, I mean, I wouldn't exactly want to be on one with the when you're sort of without the cover of the plane, you know, yeah, where people jump off of cliff cliffs. And things, yeah, oh, sure. my God, I think I'd have a heart attack halfway through. And they actually do buzz around like that. With a, with a parachute. Well, they have now wingsuit guys who drop off sheer drops. And if ah. you get it, I mean, the principle being, if you go fast enough, anything will fly. I mean, even a human body with a Batman suit on it, which is what these guys do. Well, what do you do with a parachute that doesn't have a hee-haw for the eardrum? What's a hee-haw? Well, you know, the noise. That's oh, well, the, the, the guys who leap off cliffs in Switzerland and Norway and just drop like stones with these wingsuits on are doing probably 150 miles, 110 miles per hour. 
a human body falling from an aeroplane will max out at 120 miles an hour. Oh my! That's yeah. as fast as a human body will go before wind resistance makes it. But I'm talking equilibrium. about the parachutes. You know, when well, you see an parachutes Aspen, are quite important. Oh, well, that's parasailing. That's, yeah, and then, then all, they sort of move yes, around with a little handle. They, the early form of parachutes were just a big circle, and they, you didn't have much control over which way you went once you'd uh, opened the parachute. Later ones from the 60s onwards had um, handles, and they're square-shaped, and due to the air coming through them, they fill into a very crude Correct. airfoil. Correct. And you can steer them with the toggles on each side. Wingsuits are just basically like a Batman suit for a child, which have stiffness and battens in them. And these guys, with great bravery, leap off, off, off cliffs. How do and, they stop? Well, they drop down and they fly after a fashion, but you have to be flying down a very steep slope, otherwise the slope's going to hit you, and that's the end, until you reach somewhere where you just open a parachute and then come down. So the whole thing lasts about two or three minutes, and it's you're traveling at about 110, 115 miles per hour. Down. In a wingsuit, going as fast as you can. And at that speed, you have a certain amount of lift because you've got you know, your body weight versus the lift generated by the wingsuit. Until you couldn't ever land like that, you'd be a, you know, be a, a ball of... You know, ball bush, of, bush. You'd be hamburger. Um, but you basically, at the last minute, you, you then open a parachute and drift down. Whereas a glider or a hang glider, you can land normally um, and not have to jump out with a parachute. They're beautiful, but they scare me half to death. Yeah, I mean, I get up a ladder three feet and I go, ah, help me, help me. I went on a hot air balloon once and I thought it was the most exciting thing in the world. I get in this little basket and I tell you, it's probably, God only knows, it's the size of a basket I put flowers in, right? And there's three of us tucked into this thing. And all of a sudden you hear this raring flame and I'm 5'11", right? And I'm not short. All of a sudden I think my hair's on fire. I look up and the bloody thing is full of, of, of gas and, and, and flames. And I'm now trying to crunch in this little basket. And I am now terrified as, the, as this little basket is going up in the air. And the sound that it makes is terrifying. It sounds like you're on fire because they go shoot with this huge noise. And I'm cowering in fear. I turn sheet white and I am holding on for dear life to this basket. I think we should have gone 15 feet. I was screaming, get me down, get me down. I thought I was on fire. And they all were like, well, what's happening with this girl? She's having a heart, she's ruining our fight, you know. And there was no way. I mean, they had to turn the thing down. I almost collapsed. I thought I was gonna have a heart attack. I think I needed two tranquilizers just to make me breathe. I don't know why I was so horrified. And so when I was in Africa, I had the possibility of flying on a, whatever you call those, hot air balloons. And I said, no, thank you, as fast as I possibly could, because I was terrified, absolutely terrified. But people are afraid of heights. It's actually quite normal. Obviously, you're not. No, you I'm take not you sure. a bird. <laughs> With the, the noise you heard is a roaring of a, a huge burner um, producing the hot air. Uh, basically, a, a balloon is nothing more than a captive thermal. You're, you're making your own thermal, but keeping it inside just for your use alone by the use of a very thin cover. And the French Montgolfier brothers were the first people to do this in the 1780s, long before the French Revolution. They sent up a sheep, very clever, like the Ass Apollo program. First thing they did was they sent up a sheep because people thought if you got more than 50 foot off the ground, the air would be too thin and then you'd drop off. And after the sheep made it to the outskirts of Paris, they went up themselves. So it became very fashionable and these balloons were decorated like quilts, you know, Marie Antoinette style, all beautiful and lovely. And that's why the word for a hot air balloon in France is not a hot air balloon. It is a Montgolfier, Montgolfier brothers. I love it. But the, the noise is, is the burner making the hot it's air. It's scary, gets, though. Oh, it must be like a roaring fire. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm not that cuckoo. And I'm like, listen, if it doesn't smell good, sound good, I don't want to be in it. <laughs> oh, dear, dear. All right, my friends, we are 
So thrilled you came to hear a lot of uh, wonderful stories, actually. I was rather fascinated. And as I always say, lead us on a temptation. We can find it ourselves. And please find us on uh, Google, iTunes, Twitter. And Miss Dee's Lunacy wishes you a wonderful day, wonderful evening. And we will see you shortly. And all the best. God bless. Thank you very much, Deanne.